Well, I told you yesterday there's two sessions every speaker dreads, Friday night and after lunch. Here we are. We'll get through it together. Man, these weekends, once they start, they happen so fast, it's hard to believe we're nearly at the end, but... Um, as an outsider looking in, it's like I've watched you grow and flourishing even over these uh, 24 to 48 hours. And there's so many things that we could talk about. But uh, we have to have each other to flourish. I'm sure that you guys have this too, but I have friends that <clears throat> have not gotten themselves plugged back into church or to a women's group since COVID happened. And are they still Christians? Of course they are. But are they flourishing? No, they're not. And so part of what you're feeling and experiencing is how other Christian women will contribute to your flourishing. And so we need each other in order to flourish. Uh, I always sort of feel the weight of the fact that when I get to be your Bible teacher in settings like this, I will never again get to be with this group in this way. So I gotta have my words count. But you uh, are a delight to me, and we'll be together forever in heaven, even if we don't ever see each other again here. So thanks for letting me spend my weekend with you. I've enjoyed it very, very much. Uh, I know we've been in Psalm 92. We're going to get back to Psalm 92, but we're going to start in Revelation. Yes, that Revelation, that book in the back of your Bible. It has become my favorite book of the Bible. Several um, years ago, I sat down with my table of contents uh, for my Bible and said to the Lord, listen, I believe every word is breathed out by God and it's all useful for instruction. So show me by the power of your spirit what parts of my Bible I have never read. And I have a flair for the dramatic, so I made a list. The forgotten books. And I spent years studying those books that I had never studied before, including the book of Revelation. And uh, we'll get back to the safe territory of Psalm 92 here in a minute. But in reality, it's all inspired. It's all useful. And um, I think Revelation's where we need to park as we end our time together. I have no idea what made you sign up to be here. I have no idea what brought you to the retreat this weekend. There are many, many good reasons to come, including the food, which has been amazing. Um, But my hope for you is that you arrived here yesterday with one view of Jesus and that you're going to walk out of these doors not long from now with a different view of Jesus and that that view of Jesus will transform how you respond to the world around you and is gonna enable you to flourish well beyond this weekend and enable me to flourish uh, well beyond this weekend. I I told you from the get-go, I can't change your life and I haven't changed your life this weekend. If you've experienced any change, that's been by the power of the Holy Spirit through his word. Um, But he, I think he loves to help us flourish. So uh, we've been asking him, but I'm gonna keep asking him because I want him to know how much I know I need him. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this weekend. Thank you that um, because you love us, you don't let us stay in places where we're not flourishing. And thank you that your word is so powerful. I pray that this last session would deliver exactly what it is you want it to deliver and that you'd help us to fix our eyes on you moving forward. It's in your name I pray, amen. All right, here's the big idea for this last session. Jesus is king over an everlasting kingdom. And that changes how we respond to everything that is passing away. I'll say it one more time because I see your pins flying on your papers. Jesus is king over an everlasting kingdom. And if that's true, and it is, 
then it has to change how we respond to everything that is passing away. It's interesting, I, I'm so blessed to get to travel and speak at women's events, and one of the cool things is that I go all over the country and God is doing the same thing in different parts of the country, in different kinds of churches, in different kinds of women's groups, and one of the things he seems to be doing is equipping us to be lights in a world that is increasingly hostile to Jesus. We are post-Christian America. We're not becoming post-Christian. We are post-Christian America. If you haven't noticed, and I'm sure you have noticed, we're no longer the home team. And that's okay. Jesus warned us that was going to happen. But we have to recognize and equip each other for how do we live as Christ's ambassadors in this world. And so that's what we're going to look at here. We're going to talk about Jesus's lasting kingdom here in a minute, but let's realize why that is such a strange concept for us to wrap our brains around. We don't know anything of lasting kingdoms. Every four years, we either elect or re-elect our leader, or sometimes we elect him and then kick him out, right? And then there's midterm elections and local elections and runoffs and revolutions. And the bottom line is that we have built an entire system around the idea that we would like our leaders to be disposable. Now, I'm not here to argue the merits of that or not, but when we get to talking about Jesus's kingdom, we need to realize how foreign that is to our understanding of leadership. I know what you're thinking. Did that girl just talk politics and revelation in her first few minutes? I did. I want us to think only briefly about our kingdoms, our little K kingdoms, and then we're going to quickly get to Christ's kingdom, the capital K kingdom, the kingdom which is another kind of kingdom altogether. I hope you know your way around this book of Revelation. It's interesting. Revelation is the book that Christians say they most want to learn more about, and Revelation is the book that pastors say they are least likely to teach on. So we have this gap um, between, we kind of want to understand this book, but it's difficult to teach. But uh, I'll give you an overview. Every text is part of a context, so it's always good to just take a few minutes to get the lay of the land. So Revelation is about a revelation or a vision that was given to the disciple John as he was exiled on the island of Patmos. He was there as a religious prisoner. And he dedicated the first three chapters of his book to the seven churches that were actual churches that actually existed in John's day. And some of those churches were commended for their faith and their goodness to each other and their devotions to good work. But most of the churches, uh, they did not get a passing grade from John. Their devotion to Jesus was waning. This was, of course, after Christ was crucified and resurrected and his disciples were trying to spread the gospel through the world. And so their devotion to Jesus was waning, which always leads to us tolerating sins that we shouldn't tolerate and forgetting that we have an assignment. And it's not as complex as we make it out to be. Our assignment is to love God and to love people. And so John uh, took some jabs at some of those churches. Here's a question for us to consider as we jump into Revelation 4 where we're going to land. If there was an eighth letter to the churches, if the eighth letter to the churches was to us, the church in America in 2023, what would the Holy Spirit say about us? Would we receive one of those rare letters of commendation or would we receive one of the more common letters of condemnation? We don't have to guess. Here's the test. Let me read us Revelation 2, 3 through 5. I know you are enduring patiently 
and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. John here is describing what it looks like to flourish in a difficult world. Revelation 2, 3 through 5. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. John was writing to the churches to say, hey, hey, you're not flourishing. It's true, you're doing some good things. But the most important thing to have flourishing in your lives, the most important thing to have thriving in your churches is your love for Jesus Christ. And the, the warning dash on the dashboard, the warning line on the dashboard is blinking, churches, pay attention. As I look at what's happening in the church here in the States and globally, we seem to be in an era of lampstand removal. Many leadership failures are being exposed. Many churches are being shaken. And while that can feel scary to us, what we need to realize is that is a tremendous mercy. Because what that is, is the Holy Spirit calling us back to our first love and saying, it doesn't matter if your attendance is flourishing. It doesn't matter if your programs are flourishing. What matters is, what matters most is, is your people's love for Jesus. Is it flourishing? Is it thriving? The test is definitely not, are we being accepted by the culture? No, of course we're not. We are by nature countercultural. We follow Jesus who said all kinds of things that the culture doesn't like. So if we follow the arc of Revelation, John had this interesting outline. Chapter one, he was explaining that he had this vision. Chapters two through three, he wrote those seven letters to the churches where he was calling them, all of them back to a flourishing love for Jesus. And then in chapter four, he takes this, what seems to be like a really hard right, and he describes Jesus in the throne room. And that's where I want us to park together. And this last session is in Revelation 4. Now, that seems strange. Why did he go from the letters to the churches to describing Jesus in the throne room? Well, because if your love for Jesus is going to be inflamed, and if your love for everything else is going to be extinguished, if you're going to persevere as a follower of Jesus in a culture that is just going to get more and more hostile towards him, if we are going to be the church that God calls us to be, we must, there's no other way, we must fix our eyes on Jesus as he really is. Not my Jesus, not your Jesus, not made into the image of our hopes and dreams, the Jesus the Alpha and Omega, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the bright and morning star. Seeing Jesus as he really is, is what transforms us. And I would say that when there are areas of our life that aren't flourishing, we've forgotten to look at Jesus. Listen to Revelation 4. I'll read us verses one through two first. This is, remember, John's having this vision. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Have you ever marveled at the gift that the Holy Spirit preserved this for us? 
Somehow, supernaturally, I can't explain it, but God let John peek into heaven and see heaven. And then, John's vision got preserved for us so that all these years later, we can peek into heaven. We can see the one true God. Now, we're gonna talk through this scene together and I hope that your senses are awakened to what's happening in that room right now because this isn't just what was happening when John had the vision. And this isn't just what's going to happen when we're in heaven right now, right this very moment. Jesus is seated on his rightful throne and everything we're reading about is what Jesus is doing right now. And scripture lets us peek in there. Now, scripture also tells us that nobody's ever seen anything like it. We haven't heard anything like it. We can't imagine what heaven is like, but we're going to try. I'm going to pick it up at verse 3. And he who sat there, which is Jesus, had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. I'm at verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. Verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. I'll give you an assignment. I want you to sometime soon get yourself to Washington, D.C. and go to the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. We just took our buddies there this fall. And you can pass all the dinosaur bones as far as I care. You can go right past the fossils. That, that didn't wow me. But I got myself to the hallway of gems and precious stones. It goes on forever. And I was standing in this hallway... And behind glass are all of these different rocks and gemstones and crystals of every color you can imagine, every shape you can imagine. Some of them are sparkly, some of them aren't, some of them are giant, some of them are small. There's all of these colors that don't come in your crayon box. And I'm standing in the middle of the hallway of gems and precious stones with tears just running down my eyes, face. And my boys were like... Why are you crying in the rock room, mom? (laughs) Because as I was standing there, I thought how millions of people walk through this hallway every year. How can anybody walk through this hallway and come to any other conclusion that there is a God and we're not him? And he is more powerful and more magnificent and more creative than we can ever imagine. Romans 1 tells us that the invisible nature of God is visible in what he's made. I say all the time, we would have no joyless Christians if we just went outside some. Because you go outside and you go, I didn't make all of this. I couldn't have made all of this. But there's one who did. And as I was in that hallway with all of those amazing specimens of geology, I thought of this throne room. Because John is using rocks and gems to describe what he sees. Now, he even kind of admits that his words fall short. He's saying, it's like this, it's kind of like this, it's like this. He can't put it into words, but he does his best. Every color, every shape, and it still doesn't touch this scene that we just read about. 
He said it was like jasper and carnelian. That's a deep, deep red stone. And he described this rainbow, but it didn't have the colors of the rainbow. He said it was like an emerald, which is a deep, deep green. And around Christ's throne, there's these 24 other thrones and doesn't even tell us who sits on them because it doesn't matter. What matters is who's on the throne. And it tells us that they're wearing these, these bright white garments, which all throughout scripture stands for our righteousness, our holiness. And there's all kinds of cosmic things going on. There's lightning and there's thunder and there's flames. And then there's this sea. It's, it's so clear that it looks like it's made out of crystal. It must sparkle like a million diamonds. And John's watching all of this happening. He's trying to describe it for us. Who made that throne room? Jesus did. And why did he make that throne room? To showcase his glory. Can you imagine a God that makes seven, there's 7,000 different kinds of apples, by the way, 7,000 different kinds of apples, and, and butterflies, and flowers, and clouds, and beaches, and lakes, and marshes. God created all of that to show us who he is and imagine the most beautiful place on earth you've ever been and then try to imagine what Jesus would create in the heavenly throne room meant to showcase his glory. What must it be like? Let's pick it up at verse six. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal and around the throne On each side of the throne are four living creatures and they're full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature is like a lion. The second living creature is like an ox. They weren't a lion, they weren't an ox, but John's trying to find something to help us understand what these creatures are like. The third living creature was with the face of a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. What's happening in heaven right now? There are colors that our human eyes can't take in. There is a sea that looks like the diamonds on our fingers and there are these otherworldly creatures that are covered in eyes and they have three sets of wings and their eternal assignment is to tell us that God is holy, God is holy, God is holy. We've never heard anything like these creatures. I was in a zoo once and the male lion started to roar. And you could hear it from anywhere in the zoo. We all took off running. I mean, it stopped your heart. And what John is describing here is a creature like that, only only he's supernatural, only he's covered in eyes, only he is assigned the task of giving Jesus the glory that he's due. This is a a supernaturally spectacular place. Let's finish chapter four, verse 10. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. 
I wanted to spend my 40th birthday at the base of a redwood tree because if I lived to an average age, that was a halfway mark. And I just wanted to head into that second lap conscious of my smallness. Well, I turned uh, 40 in April of 2020, so I didn't get to spend at the base of a redwood tree. The Lord's done something so sweet, though. I have talked about it on a couple of podcasts, and several months ago, a woman emailed me and said, the Lord put it on her heart. We're going to send you to the Redwoods. I've met her a handful of times. I don't know her well. And uh, I was like, that's amazing. So generous. Uh, makes me uncomfortable that you're being so generous. You ever have that feeling? But I said, I, don't, I really don't want to see the Redwoods without my husband. And she said, we knew you were going to say that. We're going to send you both to the Redwoods. So in April of this year, they have paid our whole way. We're going to spend our time at the base of the Redwoods. And just, I just want to acknowledge that I'm teeny tiny. And there are some giant trees. And that's the same feeling we should have when we read Revelation 4. We're not in the throne room. We don't have a throne. We're not even among the supernatural creatures that are giving Jesus glory. And yet, the one who is seated on the throne, who is worthy of all the glory and honor and praise, is the one who has loved us since before the foundation of the world. He's the one that will be faithful to us every day of our lives and beyond. As I've shared, I've faced some really exhausting few years as we've um, dealt with my mom's illness. And there's a little line that I say to myself almost daily. Jason and I live on this little farm and I told you our sunsets are so beautiful. And so I, on those really stressful days, particularly before we put her, um, she's now in a facility, and before we put her in a facility, I had huge caregiving responsibilities. And so I would get to the end of one of those days that were just so exhausting. And I step outside on the patio as the sun was setting. I take a deep breath, let my shoulders fall down and say often out loud, Aaron, rest your weary bones. The king is on his throne. He is always, always on his throne. Nothing that can ever happen to us can ever remove him from his position as the king of all things. And in acknowledging that, we are able to flourish through the most horrific circumstances. I mentioned this yesterday, but our brothers and sisters in the Middle East are facing such brutal persecution and such brutal oppression at the hand of, our gov of their government. And yet... In some way, I can't explain. They're flourishing. Why? Because they rightly see Jesus as he really is. Seated on the throne. Governments will come and go. Laws will come and go. Revolutions will come and go. But Jesus will always be seated on his throne. Imagine how tightly John must have clung to that hope. Because John had this remarkable vision he got to peek into the throne room. He got to see Jesus high and lifted up on his rightful throne. He got to see these creatures worshiping him night and day. But then the vision was over. God didn't sweep John up into heaven in that moment. John had to go back to his life in a cell. But don't you know his waiting was different after that? I think he stopped waiting for a softer bed. I think he stopped waiting for some loophole in the judicial system or some way to escape. 
I think from that moment on, when he saw Jesus on the throne, he must have longed with every single breath to see Jesus again in the throne room. No matter what we do, no matter what we experience, no matter what we feel, my friend Tippy says feelings aren't facts, I love that. No matter what's going on in the world around us, Jesus is on the throne. He cannot be moved, he cannot be deposed, he will not surrender. Scripture tells us he doesn't even sleep. Jesus is ruling, he is always ruling, he will always be ruling. But here's the problem, we like to be the ones in charge. And while Jesus is our king and he's always been sovereign and he will always be sovereign, we can often live as if there's no one at the helm. And when we forget who's in charge, we will not thrive. We will not flourish. Here's what I know about a room full of women. We got worries. We didn't mean to bring them with us. They just came like, I didn't mean to bring Missouri weather with me. It just came in my carry-on. I'm sorry. I heard it's leaving with me, so you should have warm air tomorrow. But we got worries. We do. And many of them are legitimate. And yet, here's what Jesus is saying to you through his word. Do you want to flourish? Eyes on me. Eyes on me. The second you put your eyes on all that's going on around you, you're going to wilt. The second you put your eyes on what's happening in the culture, you're going to wilt. Eyes on me. Eyes on me. Think about Peter walking on the water. Jesus was like, Peter, look at me, look at me. And as long as Peter was looking at Jesus, he could walk on the water too. But the second he stopped, he sunk. Think about Jesus on the cross. He was saying throughout all of time, hey, hey, eyes on me, eyes on me. This is the gospel that I have taken on your sin so that you might have life. Think about the ascension as he was going back to heaven. Scripture tells us the disciples just stood there waiting for him to come back. He was saying, eyes on me, eyes on heaven. Look to me. Think about him in the throne room. He gave us this picture in Revelation 4 so that we could keep our eyes on him as he really is. Okay, that was just the preamble. Let's get to Psalm 92. (laughs) I was just kidding, kind of. Let me connect the dots between Jesus in the throne room and Psalm 92. We haven't yet read the guts of this psalm. We started with the last four verses. We've read the first four verses, so let me read us the middle. Psalm 92, five through 11. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. If someone would have read this to me without telling me the chapter and verse, I could have told you that David wrote that. Because he does that a lot. 
He starts with, oh God, I praise you, how wonderful you are, and then he usually slips in, kill the bad guys, and then he also goes back to, oh God, how amazing, how wonderful you are. That's the pattern of the Psalms. I love that you taught a workshop on the Psalms. The Psalms are a language for real life. That's what they are. And David doesn't sugarcoat anything. It's not like everything's great, nothing's bad. No, he's like, they're trying to kill me. Kill them first. I love you, Lord. That's kind of how he talks. But, but what David does in the Psalms is what God has called us to do in our own lives. There is always the pivot. He is honest about what he's walking through, but then there is always this moment where he chooses to say, but my eyes are on you. These things are happening, they're real, they're scary, but I'm gonna put my eyes on you, Jesus. Listen to verse five again. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep, but you, O Lord, are on high forever. Now David didn't get a glimpse of God in the throne room like John did, but David knew in his soul that the king was on his throne and he would always be on his throne. Remember our thesis for the weekend, the righteous flourish. How do we flourish? Eyes on me. Eyes on Jesus is how you flourish. I was just having coffee with a friend not long ago, and we were talking about how many women we know who are followers of Jesus and are constantly drowning. Now, we weren't naming names. I don't think we were gossiping. But we were more talking about the phenomenon of Christian women who would not themselves say they were thriving, and as outsiders looking into their lives, we would not say they were thriving either. And my friend said something so simple and so profound. She said, it's like they have no Jesus in their lives. They've given themselves to Jesus. They're followers of him. And I wanna remind you, I said this yesterday, I'm not talking about salvation here. Jesus never leaves us. Once we've given our lives over to him, scripture says we're sealed by his Holy Spirit and nothing, not even ourselves, can snatch him from his hands. But I'm talking about women that know Jesus is their savior and are operating as if he's not on the throne. They're drowning in their own lives. If you're not flourishing, again, I want you to remember that blinking dashboard light. And what that blinking dashboard light is essentially God saying, hey, 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 eyes on me. Hey, 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 that's not going well because you're trying to manage it. Eyes on me. Isaiah 26.3 is a promise. You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all those whose thoughts are not fixed on you. Wait a minute, I missed it. Let me look at my Bible. Sometimes I get things wrong when I transfer them to my notes. I have to read it from my iPad because my eyes are too old to read from my Bible, but I can't admit it. Anybody else? I want to get it right. All the women in my Thursday night Bible study have large print Bibles. So they're like turning the pages like, (laughs) I'm not there yet. Okay, let me read. Isaiah 26.3. Didn't sound right when I read it. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. There it is. 
When COVID hit, I put this verse in our kitchen. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Perfect peace. You can have it. God's promised it to you. There is a disclaimer, fine print. You have to keep your eyes on him. Lack of peace is a blinking dash, blinking light on the dashboard of your life that you've got your eyes on something or someone other than Jesus. And it will never work. It will never lead to flourishing. Jesus is not just your reigning king. He is your coming king. Let me read us Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. I'm at Revelation 19, 13. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, that's us, church, white and pure, we're following him on white horses. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Like John, we can't unsee this. Right now, Jesus is seated on his throne, receiving the worship that is due to him. And one day soon, it won't be long now, Jesus is going to return. He's gonna reign and rule in the new Jerusalem, where as he promised, those of us who have surrendered our lives to him will inherit the kingdom, his kingdom. And this reality is how we flourish. It doesn't mean you're not gonna face difficulties. Of course you will. Some of you are gonna feel like you drove off the cliff within about two hours of this conference ending. Many of you are going home to difficult circumstances. And many of us will face something hard in the days to come. That doesn't mean that we can't flourish. The world is groaning for his return. But there's only two possible responses to King Jesus. Either we bow to him and we actively seek his rule in his life and we have a joyful response to him or we run for him. You aren't women who run from him. You are women who know he is king. So you need to be women who flourish. To see Jesus on his throne is to respond to earthly leaders differently. We don't have to wring our hands and panic every election cycle. God's in control. It means to respond to our personal suffering differently because we know our good king's gonna set this right. It's to stop spending our lives building our little K kingdoms and to shift our energies towards the coming kingdom. I hope, I hope I'm spending my days pushing everything I got towards the things that'll last forever. You know what's gonna last forever? The word of God, the people of God, and God. Everything else is going to pass away. Do you long to see Jesus on his throne? Are you praying for his return? That's how he taught us how to pray. There's a little word in 1 Corinthians 16, 22 that the New Testament believers would pray, Maranatha. It means come, Lord Jesus. 
and every Christian's heart should be groaning, Maranatha! It's how John ended Revelation. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And even as we cry out for him, we can flourish. Let's finish Psalm 92. I'm gonna read us verses 12 through 15. Back where we started yesterday. The righteous flourish like a palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. Some of you told me your Bible say thrive. I love that, both good words. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Verse 15 tells us the why. We flourish not just so that we can have happy lives. We flourish to declare who God is. Remember our thesis that the righteous flourish. Verse 14 tells us we can still bear fruit in old age. One of you guys loved that yesterday. This psalm is calling us to a lifelong commitment to flourishing in every season of our lives. Flourishing is part of our God-given mission. Think about Genesis 1. The first command God ever gave man was be fruitful and multiply. In other words, flourish. Consider the great commission in Matthew 28 where Jesus called us to be on co-mission with Christ for the rescue of the world, for pushing back sin and darkness. Talk about flourishing. The gospel is the secret to flourishing. Every once in a while, I need a reminder that the lost are hell-bound and they are trying to live this life without the hope of Christ, without the help of the Holy Spirit, without the blessings of God's church. They're not flourishing. And the bottom line is all of us, before we had Jesus, we weren't flourishing. We were dead, Scripture says, dead in our trespasses. It's not even like we were a little plant that was wilting. We were a dead plant. We were what happens to my mums every year. I buy beautiful mums, I kill them every year. But Jesus gave us new life in him. He took us from dead to flourishing, that we might live flourishing lives for his glory. Here's why this matters. I, I, I hope that you will identify some areas of your life that you've not been flourishing. I hope you'll invite the Spirit into those areas of your life. I hope that you're gonna experience new growth, but I hope you don't think I came all this way just to make your life more flourishing. This matters for the sake of the gospel because when God's people flourish, mankind flourishes. God's intent is that we would learn to flourish and that the lost then would be drawn to the life that's inside of us and that they would want it to. As God's people flourish in our gifts, which is not the same as a carefree life, as we face persecution and we flourish in the midst of it, the world looks at that and wants to take stock. When we're all drowning just as much as those who don't have Christ are drowning, our witness gets diminished. All of the institutions that help humanity flourish can illustrate this. Healthcare, yeah, that was started by Christians in response to the bubonic plague. Education, yeah, that was started by Christians as a means to teach children God's word. Education, I already said that. We're supposed to be fruitful and multiply. And as we are fruitful and multiply, as we flourish, it helps mankind flourish and it helps the gospel to go forth. So I'll ask you again, are you flourishing? 
And if you're not sure it's worth the work to breathe new life into those areas, the gospel witness is why it's worth the work. These are not do better verses. Scripture does call us to flourish, not flail, for the sake of the gospel. Part of the way this psalm has marked my life is in realizing that in flourishing in really practical ways, like getting enough sleep and managing my time well and being around Christian friends, that that helps me be who God called me to be. That when I don't ignore the blinking light on my dash, my life becomes something that non-Christians want. I have to do everything that God has for me from this body. So if this body is sick and in the bed all the time and I'm not flourishing, I can't do the assignments God's given me to do. And a commitment to flourishing has helped me move from being a victim of my circumstances to being a victor because Christ is helping me thrive. It's a soldier mentality. Scripture calls us soldiers. It's I've got a job to do and I need to be in fighting shape to do it. To accept God's call to thrive is to not let ourselves just survive, but to be like those beautiful cedars of Lebanon planted by God so that people see us and they see something about him. I love Kay Arthur. She said once, there's no retirement in times of war. I love that. And Psalm 92 is a call to flourish in every season of your life, woman. Every season. So that you can be a witness to those who need to know about Jesus. The why is not just so you have a better life. The why is so that you can declare who God is by the fact that you're thriving. I want to wrap up our time together by reading Psalm 92 over you. It really is a commissioning psalm. I'm going to change some of the words, but I'm going to commission you to have thriving lives. I've read Psalm 92 so much, it's starting to rip out of my Bible. Stay in there, Psalm 92. Oh, Jesus, it's good for us to give thanks to you. It's good for us to sing praises to your name, O Most High. It's good for us to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. We declare it to each other today. Lord, thank you for the music of the lute and the harp, the melody of the lyre and keyboards and guitars, Lord. For you, O Lord, have made us glad this weekend by your work. At the works of your hands, we sing for joy. And I pray for these sisters of mine who I love. I pray that they would flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Lord, they are planted in the house of the Lord. Help them to flourish in the courts of you, God. Lord, help us all to bear fruit in old age. Make us ever full of sap and green. We have our assignment. We want to declare that you are upright. You are our rock. There's no unrighteousness in you. Amen.